the book of John. I'll be reading uh, John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servants in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that he may be, it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Virtually everyone who professes some sort of belief in God would say that God is loving. However, very few have a correct understanding of what it means to be loving, let alone what it means for God to be loving. This is the time of year when we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, the precious gift of God the Son. But how many really understand what it means for God to give his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life? So today we're going to be continuing our examination of John chapter 3 verses 1 to 21, the account of Jesus' nighttime meeting with Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the member of the Sanhedrin the Jewish ruling council. Now, last week I presented the first two sections from verses 1 to 8, the command, you must be born again. 
And I explained that this was a command that was given not only to Nicodemus, but this is a command that is given to all, that we are all commanded to repent and to turn to Christ. And next from verses 9 to 13, I explained that you also must accept the testimony of Jesus. This was, again, a command that was given to Nicodemus and to us. We must accept the testimony of Jesus Christ. He is the authority when it comes to heavenly things because he comes from heaven. Now, as I preach this passage or prepare to preach this passage, this sermon keeps on getting longer and longer. It was my initial intention to go all the way to verse 21 this morning, but uh, again, it became evident that there was no way that I was going to be able to get through all the material that I wanted to present. So this morning, I'm going to be focusing on verses 14 to 18, on how God loved the world. And then, Lord willing, next Sunday, we'll look at at verses, the second half of verse 18 to verse 21, this is judgment. So, of course, this morning when we're looking at this passage, 14 to 18, of course it means that we're going to be examining John 3.16, which is probably the most familiar verse in the Bible. Most people in our culture have been exposed to it at one time or another. This is one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture, and it is also one of the most profound. The preacher Henry Morehouse used John 3.16 as a central text for the time that he first preached at the age of 16 until the time of his death at the age of 83. So every verse had as its central text John 3.16. Now I'm really not recommending the practice, but simply saying this to illustrate that it would take a lifetime, a lifetime, to plumb the depths of John 3.16. Martin Luther said that John 3.16 is the Bible in miniature. In this verse, we see God's hatred for sin, but in it we see God's plan for redemption. In it we see life and death laid out before us, but not just temporal life and death, we see eternal life and eternal death. In it we see the glory of God every bit as much as when he passed before Moses in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, declaring, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. But as beautiful and as powerful and as well known as John 3.16, it is also one of the most misinterpreted verses in the Bible. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that while John 3.16 is possibly the most familiar and well-known verse in the Bible, that is nevertheless true to say that there's perhaps no verse which is so frequently misunderstood and misinterpreted as this particular verse. It must therefore be examined carefully, contextually. So often people pull this verse out of its historical and biblical context 
and impose a meaning on it that the Holy Spirit-inspired author never intended for it to mean. People impose a meaning that stems from their their own preconceptions, and they fail to use the, the rule of faith or the analogy of faith measuring Scripture with Scripture in order to understand what it really means. So we have to be careful not to let our presuppositions eclipse the true meaning. We also need to be careful not to let the controversies eclipse the true meaning. But we have to allow God's Word to speak for itself. So let's examine this beautiful passage of Scripture together, seeking to understand by God's grace as the Lord meant it to be understood. Moses said to the children of Israel as they're about to cross into the Jordan, cross the Jordan in Deuteronomy 30:15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Understanding this text and acting on it, beloved, is a matter of life and death. So we'll start in verse 14 where Jesus continued his instruction of Nicodemus. He's really continuing the point that it began back in in verse 11. He just rebuked Nicodemus for not understanding what Jesus was teaching, but now not just for his failure to understand, but also for his failure to believe. Jesus testified that he, as the Son of Man, had authority to teach about the things of heaven because he had descended from heaven. And now in verses 14 to 15, he rocked Nicodemus even further by relating a familiar Old Testament story to himself. Verse 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Please turn with me to Numbers chapter 21. Here in Numbers 21, verse 4, we find the children of Israel in the wilderness doing what they do best, grumbling. True, they met with many trials along the way. Repeatedly, they'd been without food and water. Miriam and Aaron had just died. King Arad had just attacked and taken many of them prisoner. The Edomites had refused them passage, so they had to go the long way around their territory. And here they were, hungry and thirsty again. And grumbling because they failed to consider the Lord in all of this. They failed to consider the Lord's purposes. They failed to consider the Lord's love. They failed to consider the Lord's sovereignty. So they grumbled against God and against Moses, asking, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe, we loathe this worthless food, speaking of the manna that God had provided. God had actually been feeding them heavenly food, and they said, we'd loathe it. 
So in response to their, uh, their ungrateful, faithless murmuring, the Lord sent fiery serpents among them. These serpents bit and killed many. So the people came to Moses acknowledging their sin and asking that Moses would pray for them that the Lord would deliver them. Notice they didn't pray themselves. They asked that Moses would pray for them. So Moses interceded for them, and the Lord told him in verse 8, Make a fiery serpent and put it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses obeyed, and when one of the serpents bit someone, they would, in the agony of having the, the venom coursing through their bodies, would crawl to where that bronze pillar was set up in the center of the camp, and they would turn their heads and look at the bronze serpent and live. Now the bronze serpent is a type, it's a symbol that pointed ahead to the reality. Now it was an imperfect symbol because later on King Hezekiah would have to destroy the bronze serpent on, uh, on the pole because the people worshipped it. And Jesus is calling people not to worship a symbol but himself. He's saying, just like that, just like the serpent on the pole, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And whoever puts their faith in him will have eternal life. But why a serpent? How could a serpent possibly point to Jesus? Because as we know, a serpent is usually the symbol of something evil. That's exactly the point. The serpent pointed to the fact that sin is the problem, and it was our sin that needed to be atoned for. Just like it was the sin of the grumbling children of Israel that needed to be atoned for. Jesus needed to be lifted up in order for us to be saved. And Jesus was lifted up on a Roman cross. This being lifted up clearly points to the crucifixion where Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. Now John quotes Jesus speaking of this being lifted up several times. In John 8:28, Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father told me. And in John 12, verses 32 and 33, Jesus said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So on the cross, Jesus bore our sin. On the cross, Jesus bore our curse. That's a big part of the reason why Muslims See, the, the crucifixion as a stumbling block. They don't understand that, that Jesus died on the cross. They, they believe that Judas somehow took his place. Citing Deuteronomy 21, 23, that a man who is hung on a tree is cursed by God and that because Jesus was righteous, he couldn't have been cursed by God. But we as Christians know that Jesus was cursed when he was hung on the tree. He bore the curse of our sins. It should have been us up there, but Jesus 
took our place, dying the death that we deserved, bearing the wrath, bearing the wrath that we deserved. Jesus also taught that belief in him would yield eternal life in John 6.40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Son of Man who has been raised up, different Greek verb here, will raise up those who believe in him. So look on the Son and be saved, but not just saved from a fatal snake bite. Be saved from the wrath of God. It's interesting on Wednesday evening, when we were about to, uh, to watch the, the DVD on apologetics, uh, one of the, the prayers that I prayed is that that we're rejoicing and thanking the Lord for the way that this church is growing, but we're also praying that it wouldn't just be be transfer growth, people coming to this church from other churches, but we, we pray that there would be new converts. We pray that, that there would be people being coming to this church and being saved or, or being saved and coming to this church. And then just, just after that, as, the, as the, the DVD was beginning, there was uh, um, a couple of young guys that, that turned up at the back of the church, one of whom was an atheist. And, uh, and he was looking for a debate. And uh, it was really just, just an interesting answer to prayer and interesting time in that we got the opportunity to put into practice the very things that we had just been learning. And one of the things that he said, he, he knew enough to, to say that, that we need to be saved from hell. He understood that much of the gospel. But what he didn't understand is that the thing that we are primarily saved from is not hell. We are being saved from the wrath of God. From the wrath of God that an eternity in hell, an eternity in hell would never remove one drop of the wrath of God. Because God is an infinite holy, righteous God, and he must punish sin to the infinite degree. This concept of Jesus being lifted up can also refer to the exaltation of Christ. Leon Leon Morris explains that, that this is almost certainly another example of Jesus using words of set purpose that convey more than one meaning. The verb can also refer to exaltation and majesty. The same Greek Greek word hupso is used to describe the exaltation of Jesus to heaven in Acts 2.32, where Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God. And likewise, in Philippians 2.9, that God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So on the cross, where where the the world sees Jesus as being abased, Jesus is exalted. And then soon thereafter is exalted back to to his home at the right hand of God. 
This was prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. Then Jesus says in verse 15 that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now I'm going to focus on this phrase here in John 3.16 because Jesus expounds on it and, and teaches us the, the fuller meaning of what this means. Now as I said earlier, John 3.16 is probably the most familiar but the most misunderstood verse in the Bible. Has anything ever become so familiar to you that you failed to appreciate it? Maybe this applies to the relationship that you have with your husband or your wife. Maybe, you, maybe you've spent so many years looking at each other across the breakfast table that you don't really look at each other anymore. You've really forgotten what the other looks like. You take them for granted. How long has it been since you've gazed into your wife's eyes and appreciated the different shades of color? Or how long has it been since you've studied the lines on your husband's face and see the dimples when he smiles? For many people, this describes their relationship with John 3.16. This verse has become so familiar that people often cease to appreciate it. Familiarity breeds contempt, so they say. But if you've really become familiar with this verse in the power of the Holy Spirit, you can't help but fall in love with it again. For others, maybe you think that you understand John 3.16. Maybe you think that you know, you know what it means, but you've never stopped to really study it. Maybe you've, you've given it just a cursory glance, or maybe you've heard a sermon on it years ago, but you've never taken the time to study it for yourself. Maybe you've heard it quoted out of context so many times and misapplied so many times that you've simply accepted a faulty interpretation. This is like the person who drives by a beautiful park on their way to work every day. They see it every day, but they, they never stop the car to get out and take a look. And if you ask the man to describe the park, he can tell you that it's pretty. And he can give you a, a quick description. He can say there's some trees there and there's some gardens over there. But he can't tell you anything about the park that's of any significance. He can't tell you what kinds of flowers are in the park. Or he can't tell you what color they are, let alone can he describe their fragrance. So we want to stop and smell the roses of John 3.16. We want to take some time to study it and to appreciate its incredible beauty by God's grace. But there's still others who have absolutely no understanding of John 3.16, like those two young men who came to the church on Wednesday evening. Maybe they had heard it quoted by well-meaning relatives, or even maybe you've heard it quoted from this pulpit, but it's gone in one ear and out the other. In this case, it's like somebody sitting in a boat on the, above the Great Barrier Reef. Maybe you know that there's some, some dark shades, that there's probably some coral there under your boat, but you've never taken the time to get out of the boat to see what's in the water. You've never gone and taken a look for yourself. 
You've never seen the incredible beauty that sits there just under the surface. And if that describes you, I pray that the Lord would give you eyes to behold the beauty of this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So let's take the first phrase. For God so loved the world. For God. Now the first thing we need to note, we need to notice is the conjunction for. This fact is often missed because most Bibles insert a paragraph here at the beginning of verse 16, or even sometimes they insert a, a heading break. So they miss that important conjunction for. But you don't start a new thought with the word for. It's a continuation of what has come before. It's a continuation, as I said earlier, of what goes back to verse 11. And especially of what Jesus has just said in verses 14 and 15. We need to remember also that this is all part of the discussion that Jesus had with Nicodemus, the Pharisee. So for God. In this we see that the author of love, the one doing the loving, is God, God himself. We studied this at length when we looked at the, the goodness of God and we studied his attributes earlier in the summer. We saw this last week that the new birth is a work of the Holy Spirit as God sovereignly gives to a dead sinner, a new heart. It should be no surprise that God is the author of this love because God is love, 1 John 4, 18 and 16. And God's love is, fa God's love is found on every single page of the Bible. We see his love in creation. We see his love in slaughtering an animal to provide a covering for Adam and Eve after their sin. We see his love in saving Noah and his family. We see his love in saving Lot. We see his love in calling Abraham and providing him a son. We see his love in delivering Israel from Egypt and then taking them into the promised land. We see his love in setting up a tabernacle and then the temple as the place for his presence with his people. We see his love in providing a system of sacrifices so that his people could approach this holy God. God's love is presented again and again and again in redemption history, but it is not until the cross that his love can be fully understood. A cruel instrument of torture seems a strange place for the display of God's love. But there, juxtaposed with God's perfect hatred for sin, as God's furious wrath is poured out, we see his love most clearly. For it's on the cross that God's love and his hatred for sin are most clearly seen. In that moment, as Jesus felt the loss of his father's approval and felt instead his father's wrath, we see God's love. This break in fellowship with his father was something that he had never before experienced. 
And it was far more painful, even far more painful than the excruciating pain of the physical torture on the cross. This is the first time that John uses the verb agapao, which he uses 36 times, more than twice the number of any other book in the New Testament, except for 1 John, where he uses it 31 times. This is why John is often referred to as the apostle of love. As John MacArthur points out, John writes in the gospel that God is a God of love, that God loved his son, that God loved Christ's disciples, that God loves the world, that God is loved by Christ, that Christ loved the disciples in general, that Christ loved them as individuals, that Christ expected men to love him, that Christ taught that we should love one another, and that love is the fulfilling of the whole law. This is the message of John 3.16. This is the message of the apostle of love. This is the message of Jesus Christ. In John 3.16, we also see the character of this love. For God so loved that he gave his only son. God so loved that he gave his only son. The Greek word here translated so is in the Greek is, is hutos, which means in this manner. So in other words, Jesus is saying God loved the world like this. He loved the world to such a degree that he gave his only son. Now, this kind of love is something that is so foreign to us that we can only barely attempt to understand it. We can only do so in the power of the Holy Spirit. How would you respond? If somebody told you that in order to save a boatload of people, your own child would have to be killed, how would you respond? I think it's safe to say that, that almost everybody in the natural sense, would choose their own child. But God so loved that he gave his only son. Now, God didn't leave us alone to try to figure this out. As I said, he gave us his Holy Spirit. He gave us Holy Scripture that we can understand in the power of his Spirit. And that the whole trajectory of redemption history pointed to this moment when God gave his only son. Now this is, is not just his only child. It's actually his only begotten son. And unfortunately the, the, King, James, the King James gets it right here, but, but a lot of other modern translations don't. It's his only begotten son, Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. He's not just any old son. He is God the Son, eternally 
God the Son. And God gave him, God gave him for us. The aged father wakes his son early in the morning and gathers his son and two servants. Together they walk slowly up the mountain. In all his long years, he has never taken such a difficult journey. Every step is more difficult than the last as he climbs up the mountain with his precious son. But he's resolute. He knows he must obey the Lord. He's been called to do the unthinkable, to offer his own son as a burnt offering. Now he believes that somehow, even if he kills his son, that the, he and the boy will return, that somehow God will provide a lamb. So in faith, this grieving father builds an altar and lays the wood at the foot of the altar, binds his son and lays his son on the altar and then takes up a knife to kill his son. But in the last second, the angel of the Lord calls out to him and says, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram was caught in the thicket by his thorns, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. This event that took place 2,000 years prior to the event that we're talking about this morning took place so that we would understand. But in this event, this event that we're looking at in John 3.16, there would be no last minute stay of execution. There would be no ram in the thicket. This time, the father would sacrifice his son. The son would be the sacrificial lamb. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Isaiah 53.10 This is love. This is the love of God. But next we see the object of this love. For God so loved the world. Now, the word world has been a source of serious controversy and misunderstanding. We need to ask, what does it mean that God loved the world? Does it mean world without exception? Does it mean that God savingly loves every man, woman, and child who would ever live on the planet? We need to be so careful here not to impose our own our own understanding on the word world, but to consider it in its context. Remember, I need to call this to our attention again, that this passage is part of a larger conversation between Jesus and the leader of the Pharisees. Remember last week that we identified some serious problems with the Pharisees' teaching. This was the teaching that Jesus came directly to confront. 
The Pharisees added to the law of God. They tried to establish their own righteousness and that their righteousness was only skin deep. But there's one more serious problem with the Pharisees that we need to address. Their view of the extent of God's love. The the Pharisees believed that Jews and Jews only were God's chosen people. So the concept of God's love extending to other nations was completely foreign to them. No pun intended. But it shouldn't have been. The Jews are God's chosen people. But God chose them to be the instrument of his blessing to all nations. And this is what Jesus is teaching here. The covenant that the Lord had made with Abraham in Genesis 12 declared in verse 3 of of Genesis 12 that in Abraham all the families of the world would be blessed. And throughout the Old Testament, we find Gentiles grafted in to Israel. We see people like the harlot Rahab or the Moabite Ruth or the inhabitants of the city of Nineveh. But as the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus should have understood it. He should have understood that God's redemption plan was not just for Jews but that the Jews would be the instrument of God's blessing to the four corners of the world, to every tribe and tongue and nation. As we sang this morning, O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. Now perhaps Jesus was alluding to this in verse 8 when he said, The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born born of the Spirit. You don't know who is going to be acted on by the Holy Spirit as he works to bring about the new birth. A.W. Pink explains that, that Nicodemus, that believed that God's mercies were were confined to his own nation. That Christ there announced that God's love in giving his son had a larger object in view, that it flowed beyond the boundary of Palestine, reaching out to the regions beyond. And we have to consider other times that the word world is quoted by the same author and how it's used by Jesus. In John 12, 19, after the triumphal entry, when the crowd had gathered around Jesus, the Pharisees lamented, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, he obviously doesn't mean every man, woman, and child was going after Jesus, but that Greeks, along with Jews, were there gathered and had come to hear Jesus. We also have John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Did Christ by his death take away the sin of all people without exception? If he did, this would be universalism, that all people will be saved. And we know that this is not true. Furthermore, in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17.9, Well, he's in Gethsemane, he prayed, I'm not praying for the world, but for those that you have given me. If Jesus doesn't pray 
for all people. If he does not intercede for all people, neither did he die for all people without exception. The blood of Christ is sufficient for everybody, but is efficient for the elect. The blood of Christ is powerful enough to save everybody, but actually saves every person that God has predestined for salvation. For the gospel is the power of salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 1.16 Next we see in John 3.16 the means of that love. Salvation didn't come through obedience to the law as the Pharisees believed. God so loved that he gave. Salvation comes through God's giving, not man's working. Think about how this would have shocked Nicodemus. His his whole system of belief was based on works. And here Jesus is saying works have nothing to do with it. That salvation is a gift. It's a gift that comes through faith. Salvation simply comes through belief in the Son, not through obedience to the law. The Pharisees had established a complex system of external rules and then sought to earn their salvation by adherence to those rules. The Apostle Paul had tried this in his earlier life as a Pharisee. He lists his credentials in Galatians 5, sorry, Galatians 3 verses, sorry, Galatians 3 verses 5 to 6 where he says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But, he continues in verses 7 and 8, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. All of his lineage and all of his works were filth. Filth compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ. And that's why the Apostle Paul is able to say in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace... You've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, of course, one has to believe in order to receive. But the construction of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and throughout Scripture, we see that this faith is a gift The ability to believe is a gift from God. We even saw this last week. As regeneration is a work of the Holy Spirit, it is God who saves. If it depended on any work, then we would be doomed because we cannot obey God enough. We cannot believe God enough. We simply have faith in the Son. And then finally, we see its results. Whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. He will have eternal life. 
Well, what does it mean to believe in him? John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So to believe in Jesus means to put your faith in him. It means to turn away from your sin and your self-righteousness and your self-anything and turn to Christ. It means to exalt him as your Lord, as the Son of God. But to this point, Nicodemus didn't believe in Jesus. He didn't exalt Jesus. But whoever believes in him will have eternal life. It's not just life. It's eternal life. Eternal life is defined in John 17.3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And in 1 John 5, 11 and 12, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and that this life is in his Son. And whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. This life is not just sitting on a cloud, strumming on a harp. This is fellowship with Jesus Christ, intimate, eternal fellowship. And that life doesn't just start when we die. Those who are alive in Christ already have that relationship. They already have eternal life. They already have life with Christ, even though it has not yet been fully, been fully consummated. But in closing, we need to see this truth in the light of the verses that follow, especially the following two verses in verses 17 and 18. Commentator Gerald Borchardt explains that verse 16 serves as a statement of fact involving the agency, the Son, that God used to bring salvation to the world. And then verse 17 expands on God's intention and clearly identifies God's purpose in sending the Son. And then in verse 18, we see a, a, the, the reality statement concerning the present nature of judgment. So in other words, we need to understand that salvation comes only through the Son from verse 16, but we also need to understand how verse 17 expands on this, revealing God's purpose for salvation. And finally, in verse 18, that belief brings justification, while unbelief brings condemnation. God did not send his Son into the world that the world might be condemned but in order that the world might be saved through him. Again, th please consider this. This does not mean that the whole world is going to be saved. It means that God's elect from every tribe and tongue and nation will be saved. But Jesus in his first incarnation did not come to condemn. The point is here that Jesus doesn't judge. The point is not here that, that Jesus doesn't judge. Jesus does judge. Repeatedly, he judged he, and commands us to do the same. In John 8, 39, Jesus says, For judgment I came into the world. And even though this is the same Greek word, krino, that's used here of condemnation, this condemning judgment has not occurred yet. It will occur. It is going to occur, occur at the return of Jesus Christ. Final judgment is coming. 
one day Christ's enemies are going to try to hide themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the wrath of him who is seated on the Lamb, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come. Who can stand? Revelation 6, 15 and 16. That time has not come yet, but it is coming. It is coming. We're going to focus more on on condemnation. The condemnation that refusal to receive Jesus brings. Next week and in the weeks that follow. But for now, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if, we were, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? So where do you stand this morning? Do you stand as an ally of Christ or as an enemy of Christ? This morning's message is a matter of life and death. You need to not only understand what this passage says, but to act on it by God's grace. So again, as Moses said to the children of Israel as they're about to cross the Jordan, Deuteronomy 13, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Choose life. Choose life. Let's pray.